When we hear the word prophecy, we often think it's something regarding the future. But really, prophecy is just a message from the Lord. Sometimes there's a predictive element where a prediction is made to give hope or to give warning, or when the prediction comes true, it validates the message. So we are going to begin a prophetic book this week. It's the book of Isaiah, and every week we are going to listen for the Lord to speak. Isaiah ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah, mostly in Jerusalem. During his lifetime, he saw the rise of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrians eventually would carry off the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. During his time of prophecy, Assyria also threatened Judah. And we begin our series with the call of the prophet Isaiah. His call will include a vision of who God is, and it transformed his life. And if we can grasp the essence of what Isaiah saw, it will transform our life as well. His call begins with chapter six, verse one. And he writes, in the year that King Uzziah died. But let's go ahead and read the entire passage, chapter six, verses one through eight, before I get into the text. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Sabaoth in Hebrew. Choir just sang that. And the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, he cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. In the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah ruled Judah for 52 years. He was the only king Isaiah knew up until that time. I remember when Queen Elizabeth died, she had reigned for 70 years and her subjects were saying, we've never known any other monarch. This was the case for Isaiah and most of the people in Judah. He was a good king, but he ruled during a turbulent time when the Assyrians the northern kingdom of Israel and Aram, which is located around Damascus, they all had intents of undoing Judah. And with Uzziah's death came a time of uncertainty. 
a time of national threat. High lifted up on the throne and his train from his robe fills the temple. Now I've, I've put a, a picture of a of train. See, that's Princess Diana. That's the train of her wedding dress. So in this case, you know, the king has a, a train that's from his robe. Isaiah sees this train filling the temple. Now, the temple's a bigger building than this one. Its roof is three times as high. So look at the top of this. Multiply it three times. And Isaiah sees the Lord on a throne. His train fills the temple. And this is symbolic of his sovereignty and of his rule. In this time when the future of Judah was uncertain and perhaps out of control, Isaiah sees the Lord exalted on his throne. He sees the Lord as sovereign. Now when we speak of the Lord as sovereign, it means that he reigns over all, that he's in control. It implies complete knowledge. He knows what's going on. It implies um, unlimited power. He can bring about his purposes. It implies freedom that nothing or no one constrains him. Sovereignty does not mean that everything is dictated by the Lord. We have choices. We can choose to sin. People can sin against us. And that's not the will of God. God does not dictate that sin. He allows us to make our choices. Perhaps we can think of it this way. We have a group of children enclosed in an area and they have freedom within that enclosure to interact with each other the way they want. But you are in the enclosure with them and you're overseeing what's going on and ultimately you're in control of what goes on there even though you allow those children freedom. But ultimately, all those children that are yours are under your care and they're gonna be looked after and protected and their purposes for their lives. You're gonna make sure that comes about. We live in a world where God has allowed consequences because God has ordained a world that has meaning. Consequences are the results that come from our choices and our actions. If there were no consequences to our choices and our actions, then there's no meaning or significance to what we do. But there is meaning and significance to what we do. God allows it so that the world has meaning. But even though consequences sometimes bring bad things to us, God is sovereign. He can oversee what's going on. He can redeem the bad things. Those he has saved will be saved. Now your life is under the sovereignty of God. And we cooperate with God or we don't cooperate with him according to our choices. But regardless what happens, uh, it falls under his sovereignty. He's not caught off guard. His purposes are not thwarted and those he saves are not lost. 
with King Uzziah dead and the nation wondering what's going to be of us. Isaiah shown a, a picture of God as sovereign. Are any of you anxious this morning? Worried about your future? Scared of what might happen? The Lord is sovereign. Not one of his elect are lost. Isaiah's vision of God continues. Verse two and three. Above the Lord were seraphs or seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. Seraphim, if you hear a word im, that's a, a, a plural in the Hebrew. Seraphim are a type of angel. It literally means fiery ones. They are constantly set ablaze because of their proximity to the presence and the holiness of God. They have three sets of wings. With one set of wings, they cover their faces. Not even these angelic beings can look directly upon the holiness of God. With another set of wings, they cover their feet. It represents uh, humility and creatureliness. And, and so before the greatness of God, they're just humbled. And then with two sets of wings, they fly above the throne. And they're calling out to each other at all times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. And then they answer back to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are filled with your glory. And notice that there's a word that's repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy. Now in English, in the written word, we'll bold something or we use italics or we underline and when we speak, we use voice inflection. Hebrew uses repetition. So for example, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say unto you, he's saying, amen, amen, I say unto you, but he's drawing attention to what I'm gonna say to you is really important, it's really true. I want you to hear this and listen to this. There's only one place in scripture where an attribute of God is repeated three times. And that's in regard to his holiness. It consumes his very essence and this isn't just one attribute among many, it really describes who he is. And that word holy means set apart, separate, totally other, totally above. Think of a, a little kiddie swimming pool that little kids might splash around in. And now compare that to the amount of water in the oceans on the earth. Vast difference. But that's measurable. That difference is measurable. But the difference between God and his creation is immeasurable. Or think of the intelligence of a chicken. And then compare that to the mathematical genius of Einstein. 
Vast difference, but it's measurable. The infinite difference between God's knowledge and wisdom and ours is immeasurable. And I think that we sometimes think we know better than God. So God is totally other and above his creation. And it also speaks of his moral purity. There is no hint of sin with him. There is no shadow of motive. He burns with a white hot purity. John Calvin said, if you looked at the sun, the brightness of it would blind you. But if it were possible to look upon the holiness of God, even the light of the sun would become shadow. It is in this light of holy perfection that we realize that we are far from God's perfection. Now at the sound of the voices of the seraphim, it isn't just a little angelic choir. Their voices actually shake the temple. The the vibration of their voices actually pulsate through Isaiah's being. And now we get a response from Isaiah after seeing this vision of God. He literally comes apart and he becomes horrified and he pronounces a judgment upon himself. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He expresses fear of being destroyed. He becomes acutely aware of his sin and all of his ways of compromise. Now, usually our standard of right and wrong is what everyone else is doing in the world. And when we look at what the world is doing, we think of ourselves and think, oh, well, I'm pretty good compared to them. But if we look at God, we see the multiple layers of sin in our hearts. Now Isaiah not only realizes that he's a sinner, but he realizes the people he lives among are sinful as well. He realizes that their sin has rubbed off on him. A lot of times we get our cues of what's right and wrong from, from the culture. Do not look at culture. The norms of culture change and are ever-changing. Think of our sexual norms today. They've changed, they're always changing. Our standard is not the world, it is the holiness of God. And if you lived in Wichita 70 years ago, Wichita was a segregated city. People of color could only live in a particular neighborhood. They were not allowed to swim in the public pool. They were not eligible for the GI Bill. If you lived back in that time, you'd look at the culture around you and you'd just think nothing of it. But now we stand from our perspective and see how those attitudes are sinful. Don't look at the culture to measure what is right or wrong. Look at the holiness of God. 
Isaiah sees himself as sinful and impure, and he cries out, I am ruined. The Hebrew word is undone. It's the opposite of whole or integrated. And he uses this word to describe himself as totally shattered. Now, if there was ever a man of integrity in Israel living at that time, it was Isaiah. He was a righteous man. People thought of him as righteous. If you looked at him, you'd say, hey, this guy has it all together. Well, one glimpse of the holiness of God and he falls apart. He's morally destroyed, he's spiritually annihilated. And when we look at the holiness of God, we stop seeing ourselves as righteous. We stop rationalizing our sin. We realize we cannot come to God confident in our righteousness, thinking that he'll save us because we're better than others. Regardless of how righteous we think we are, there's a polluted part of us. I'm reminded of some Marines who were stationed in the Philippines and they rented a house together. They hired a local man to be their servant and they just made sport of him all the time, treating him cruelly. After about a year of this, they realized, you know, we're not treating this guy very well. We should be kinder to him. So they called him in, they apologized to him and said, we're sorry that we've been mistreating you, but we're gonna make it our business to treat you right. And the man said, thank you. And now I will stop spitting into your water cooler. I think, oh, he's been spitting in our water cooler? Well, that's only a small percentage of less than 1% when you compare the volume of the spittle to the volume of the water cooler. And yet, that would gross us out. But we do that with God. Save me, God, I'm righteous we have this polluted part that must be dealt with. We are undone unless God saves us. However, God did not leave Isaiah in his exasperated state. He was not willing for Isaiah to be destroyed and so he did something about his guilt one of the seraphim took a burning coal from the altar and took that red coal and put it on Isaiah's lips and said, there, your sin is atoned for. Your sin is taken away. Isaiah didn't atone for his sin. Someone else did that. Your sin has been atoned for. Your sin's been taken away. Someone else did it. Later on, Isaiah will predict the coming of the servant of God. There'll be an atonement of sin for God's people. The predicted servant was indeed the servant that atoned for Isaiah. For he atoned for the sins of his elect, whether they lived before him or after him. Notice, 
That atonement was painful. A red hot coal on your lips, burning it, the blistering. Atonement is painful. But it's not our pain that atones. It's his. After Isaiah was told that his sins were atoned for, he heard God's call. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? I believe this alludes to the triune God. Whom shall I send? One God. Who will go for us? Multiple persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. Awed by God's holiness, humbled by his own sinfulness, thankful for God's forgiveness, Isaiah answered, here I am. Send me. Isaiah was willing to do whatever God wanted. And this willingness flowed of what he saw of God. This vision of Isaiah is the gospel. We realize that God is holy and we are not. We realize that we are ruined if he does not save us. But he atones for our sins and takes them away. All our sins are atoned for. They are atoned for at the cross, whether your sins were in the past or in the present or in the future. And no sin is bigger than the atonement of Jesus. When we understand that we are forgiven and loved, we are willing to be used of God and to take his message to others. When I preached um, the week before last, I said, let's make this our best year yet. Let's do that as a church. You're the church. So let's ask ourselves, how can I be part of making this our best year yet? Maybe it's sharing the message of God's love with others or helping our missional efforts in the city or around the world. Maybe it's encouraging others you know to invest in in spiritual growth. Maybe it's your own investment in spiritual growth. Maybe whatever groups you're in, you could ask, how can we make this our best year yet? It will probably require a departure from normalcy. It will require faith, perhaps some adjustment in your time use, maybe sacrifice. But considering that he is holy and that we've been forgiven, is he not worthy of everything? I was an associate pastor, 34 years old, and I had just completed my first semester on my doctoral work. And one day a man from church hands me an envelope and he says to me, I don't want you to worry about how you and Pastor Tim are going to pay for your doctorates. Pastor Tim was a senior pastor. He was working on his doctorate. 
and I was working on mine. And when I opened the envelope, there was a check for a large amount of money, and in the memo line, it said, for the doctoral studies of the pastors. And that covered my tuition at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. I had to travel back and forth. It covered all my travel, all my books, all my housing. It paid for everything. And my heart was full of gratitude towards Daryl, who had done this for me. Someone, Daryl, asked me, hey, my mom's in a hospital. Can you visit her? Of course I can. My daughter's getting married. Will you do her wedding? Of course I'll do that for you. My mom passed. Will you do her service? Of course I will do it. Now, I would do that for anyone in the congregation, but Daryl, after what he had done for me, you could ask me for anything, and I would do it with joy. Atonement is a gift. I paid for everything. It is the gift of a holy God, and it's been given to you. Our response? Here I am, Lord. Send me. Let us pray. Almighty God, we picture you high and lifted up and upon your throne. And if we have distress or worry or fear, we are going to believe that you are sovereign. And that our plan for us is good. We see you as the Holy One. And that your light penetrates and uncovers multiple layers of sin and pride. We acknowledge that before you. We look upon the cross and see that your atonement was painful for you, but it is ours. And now we see ourselves as standing forgiven and accepted before you. And now we offer you our lives and we ask, how do you want to use me? How do you want to send me? Here I am, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.